After reviewing the play, the call on the ice stands. We got a goal! Okay, fellas, we are set to go. Let's go! We are kicking. Watch the blue! Yeah, yeah. There we go. Yeah, baby. Number 47 for Boston. Both guys, five minutes each for fighting! Please move it! Please move it! Please move it! Please move it! We are well into the NHL season. We're nearing the end of January, fast headed towards February, moving through the season. And that, of course, means, Josh, we got lots to talk about on the Scouting the Refs podcast. I'm happy about that. Uh, so am I. We we have lots going on. It's It's been a fun season so far. I, I like some of the rule clarifications we've done. I like some of the calls we've had to help shine some light on. I don't necessarily like some of the lack of suspensions or disciplinary measures, but hey, it's a lot and it's a lot of fun. Well, you touched on all of the topics for this week. There's a whole bunch of hits that occurred in games that we are going to look at and review. We are going to look at one particular hit that received a video explanation and did not involve a suspension or further discipline can't believe it, and maybe we'll even squeeze in a little discussion about shenanigans. This is the Scouting the Rest podcast, powered by Team Stripes. It is your source for officiating equipment, apparel, training tools, whatever you need. You can check them out online. GoTeamStripes.com is the website. GoTeamStripes.com. He's Josh. I'm Todd. Please follow us on our social media channels. To get Josh, it's at Scouting the Refs on Twitter and on Instagram. And of course, check out scuttingtherefs.com. To get me, Todd, it's at Todd Lewis Sports on Twitter and on Instagram. And we also accept email questions, heyref at scoutingtherefs.com. How about we begin with one more little refresher that we didn't get to last week, but would have been most appropriate in the Arizona Coyotes and Vegas Golden Knights game this past week. Ah, education around icing, always helpful (laughs) and not always critical. But man, when it comes at a key point or a goal is scored, it's a big deal. And that was the case here. It was an Arizona icing and Vegas wound up scoring a goal. It was a controversial call or non-call, as you wish to see it, on an icing play. So let's review that this is a judgment call by the officials working on the ice, but there are a number of different criteria that they are looking for on an icing play. Absolutely right, Todd. There's really two components to this one, and, and all icings. First, you want to make sure if it's going to be an icing. So you want to look at where the puck was when it was shot down the ice. Now, on this play, the puck was at the red line. The player was obviously in the defensive zone. His skates were on the far side of the red line, but we're not looking at his skates. We're looking at where the puck is at the time he's releasing the shot, or or technically speaking, the point of last contact when he was in possession of the puck, which, for practical purposes, is where you released the shot. So gaining the line is all about the puck, In this case, it looked like the puck was released at or beyond the red line. So the officials look at that and they make the determination whether or not to put their arm up for the potential icing, depending on where the puck was being released. So that's phase one. Then number two is the actual race to the puck. So let's assume that this is an icing call. It's coming up and you've got two guys hustling down the ice to get to the puck. Since hybrid icing went in, it's no longer the first to touch the puck. It's now the race, which the linesmen have to make that judgment call at the time the players reach the face-off dot. So 
it's not which player gets to the dot first. It's which player is going to touch the puck first, and it's up to the official to make that call before they get there. So in this case, the official made the determination that Vegas's Marcia show would get the puck first. He actually did, but at the time the players were moving towards it, that was the call that he would have made to wave off the icing on the play. So play was allowed to continue. I think that's where the confusion comes in. Many people believe that the race is to the hash marks or to the dot. It is the race to the puck, but there is the determining factor of where and how that judgment is made. Right, and in this case, it wasn't a direct foot race because you had the Arizona player take a different path. Yes. While Mars's show went straight to the boards, the Arizona player went on the other side of the goal cage. So he was coming around to play the puck. That difference, that variation in his path there took him a little bit out of the way and resulted in him not touching the puck first and potentially weighing into the judgment of the official who said his path is a little bit longer. You know, had the puck gone around the boards towards him, it may have been a different call. But you're, you're really, you're looking at all those factors. And yes, it's a snap judgment call, two of them, in quick succession in real time. And on the unfortunate part here is that a goal resulted, which caused this to be a, a highlighted play. It's not, oh, well, you know what, we, this one didn't quite work out. Let's just face it off at center ice. This was because there was a goal score that made it look a little more dramatic than it was. Hey, we ended up with the face off at center, but not for the reasons Arizona was hoping. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're right. Okay. Now, I want to move to an area, and this is a first to my knowledge. Maybe it was a slow news day. Maybe the NHL just decided to give the fans what they wanted and us what we wanted. But a hit that occurred in a game between the Montreal Canadiens and the Vancouver Canucks, behemoth defenseman Tyler Myers, after already having three minor penalties called against him and his team losing, had a burr under his saddle. Myers came across the ice and absolutely plowed Habs forward Yoel Armia, who remains out of the lineup. For the hit... Myers got dinged with a with a match penalty with only two and a half minutes remaining in the game and everybody was thinking there was more to come, but not so fast. It has taken a long time for it to happen, but as we have begged and pleaded for on numerous occasions, NHL video on the subject was provided, even though no further suspension or discipline came and it was a thorough explanation of the current rules as they are written in the book. How amazing was that? So nice to have player safety crack open the rule book and provide that explanation on why we had no suspension on the play. You know, it's it's always up to speculation as to, you know, why didn't they do this? Or we see all the time on social media, you know, spinning the wheel of justice at player safety and what did it land yes. on today? So to have an explanation like this, to actually pull back the curtain on why they decided not to suspend, I think was a great, great job by player safety. Worth noting, Myers did get a match penalty on the play. Right call by referee Kevin Pollock. I'd stand by that call during the game, and player safety, though, in dissecting the play, figured that no further discipline was needed. And I think I agree with their stance based on the existing rule. So the rule and what they leaned on in their decision was that the head was not the main point of contact. There there was a hit through Armia's core and, and there was contact with the shoulder and the chest and that propelled him backwards, but it wasn't the necessarily the main point of contact. And the other part, which this part gets me a little bit, Todd, is that they termed it as unavoidable head contact. And 
the Department of Player Safety called out that this particular aspect of Rule 48 was written to, quote, ensure that players stepping up to deliver full body checks through the opponent's core would not be penalized if there was no way to deliver the hit without making head contact. So this is really that area where, as written, I get what player safety is saying. This rule supports this hit because it wasn't a primary head contact and the head contact really there's no way he's making this hit without initiating that so if you disagree with the lack of suspension that's where i look at the opportunity to address it is not in player safety's decision but in that portion of rule 48 that they're leaning on in order to make that decision Agree. This is a rule book situation. You can argue about whether you need to change the rule or not, but I believe the law was properly enforced in this particular incident. I, I think it seems that this is to address the larger player versus a smaller player, which was absolutely the case here with Tyler Myers, who is much taller and larger than Yoel Armia of the Montreal Canadiens. I'm not sure where we go with this to address this. There's often the phrase used of primary point of contact with the head. And that's, again, a bit of a judgment call. Is primary more than 50%? Does it have to be 60, 70, 80%? Or can it just be the majority if you're hitting the full body? I'm, I'm not sure how we address this unless we get into some absolutes. And I think that's an area that most people don't want to go into. Right. It's it's not. Anytime you have absolutes or, you know, zero head contact, well, how do you even determine what you're considering zero head contact in a, a case where the shoulder goes into the opposing player's chest? I did think it was interesting, though, that player safety did provide some context around what they mean by main point of contact, because that's one of the things that always comes up, Todd, is that that gray area of, well, what do you mean by primary point or what do you mean by main point of contact? And they clarified it and said the head must absorb the brunt of the impact of the hit. Interesting to have them provide that little tidbit there. You know, I think that's how many interpret that to begin with, but at least putting some kind of definition around what they mean when they say main point of contact, which depending on the size of the players, depending on the impact, depending on the position, because remember, in some cases, the player being hit, any last minute changes in their body position or movement, putting themselves in a dangerous spot, sometimes contribute to the nature of the hit and often take on some of that responsibility resulting in either a lesser sentence or or no suspension for the the player delivering the hit so you know they do look at that part of it but just interesting to have that clarification from player safety coming out as part of this video and i wonder how that will play out in the future well this one wasn't the majority of head contact but it, you're subject to what kind of video replays and review you're able to make. Sure, you can go frame by frame, but the, the video on one incident may not be as good as it is on another, and you're going to have to make the best possible judgment. It's it's just a generally tricky area, but I, I welcome this video explanation to try to provide some clarity, and, and I really, as you said, hope we get more of this in the future. Yeah, absolutely, because not only is it educational for us, it's, it, it provides additional clarity, and I can tell you for sure that on any other headshots and suspensions or lack thereof, we, we will be quoting player safety with what the main point <laughs> of contact is on a headshot. The Scouting the Rest podcast is powered by Team Stripes. GoTeamStripes.com is the website for all your officiating equipment, tools, and apparel. As we're discussing body contact and hits, there were a few others this past week that drew attention. One of them involving the New York Islanders forward Leo Komarov, who absolutely drilled Caps forward Lars Eller from behind into the boards. 
He got the five, and rightfully so, although there was some shrugging of shoulders and disbelief that was put out by some of the Islanders and their supporters. Komarov likes to run around and be physical, but this is absolutely a no-brainer. This, this was a totally avoidable hit, and... Lars Eller was going to play the puck and he was either going to play it up the boards toward the blue line or back towards the corner. Either way, he was getting drilled in the back by Komarov. Komarov saw nothing but numbers the whole way in and still drove that train straight on through. So to me, I look at this, it's certainly a major penalty, but when you've got an injury to the face or the head and a major penalty there, that, that you know, you're, you're really looking at, at a game misconduct, which I'm surprised... He was not assessed on the play. And then more surprising mm -hmm. to me, Todd, is that there wasn't any supplemental discipline on it. I, I know the penalty was called. To me, dangerous hit should at least result in a fine. And I know they're mostly symbolic, but let's at least fine a player who delivers a hit that was clearly dangerous, clearly a, a you know violent hit into the boards that has injured a player. I wouldn't be against a one-game suspension, but I, I think player safety missed the boat here by not responding in some way to that Komarov hit. In this case, the head was not the principal point of contact to kind of draw back on our previous topic, but there was a direct hit from behind and it did drive the entire body of Lars Eller into the boards and his head does contact the glass. So it's not initially hit by the body, but the resulting cause is, is a headshot. Right. And under the NHL rulebook, it's not an illegal check to the head. We do have head contact. And that's why, you know, I point to that 41-5 on an injury to the head of an opponent should result in a game misconduct. So these are the types of hits where the, the hit isn't necessarily a headshot, but the outcome is a head injury. And how do you address those? How do you how do you try to prevent those types of injuries from happening without banning head contact altogether, which is something that just seems an impossible task to try to manage? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's and and that's fair. It's it's always going to be a point of discussion, but the and that's why we we want to highlight these particular incidents. In another area though, this one involving Vegas forward Mark Stone who had kind of a crackback hit on Tyler Bozak of the St. Louis Blues. Both players were skating back with the play and then Stone leans back and pops him. He got two for interference and after serving the penalty fought Justin Falk, Blues defenseman. Vigilante justice, or the code, if you prefer, sort of took care of that. But this is the kind of nonsense that should also be addressed. This was a dirty play. They were not involved in the play, and it was a it was a cheap shot. It was. Horrible, horrible hit. I, I really don't like this hit. And, uh, you know, I like Mark Stone as a player, but I, I hate this play. To me, if I'm running player safety, this is the type of hit that I would try to tighten up. Anything that's away from the play... You want those dangerous situations, but you especially want the non-hockey plays like this one. Clear interference. The guy didn't have the puck. If, if he had the puck, different story here. But something that had no bearing on the actual gameplay other than the fact that Mark Stone went hunting on this one. So at risk of, of turning into Oprah and handing out suspensions to everybody in the audience, <laughs> I like the idea of sending a message. I like giving him a game to say, you know what, if this happened as part of a hockey play and you were making a play on the puck, I get it. But the puck wasn't there. The player was unsuspecting. He he was skating across center ice. 
no room for this in hockey. We're giving you a game to send a message. And I think personally, that's where I would be drawing the line. You know, I'll give a little leeway for those puck battles or those hard Mm -hmm. hits along the boards. But when you have something like this, that's really not a productive hockey play or or even a hockey play gone bad. It's purely an attempt to just go after a guy. I, I think that's where your opportunity is to try to remove those types of hits, at least by issuing. I'm going to pass the fine and go right to one game. Stone got uh, two minutes for interference. Is this an area that's best allowing the referees to penalize it more severely at the time? Or is this better to be dealt with after when you have the benefit of a little time and a little review? I could I could go either way on this one, I think. I agree. I'm with you, Todd. I think you can go either way. And I think they complement each other well. I don't think you necessarily have to go with one or the other, depending on the situation. For the referee to call anything more than a minor penalty, it's based on the degree of violence. And and while this was a brutal hit, hard to say it was egregious enough to issue a, a major penalty on it. Mm-hmm. And if the player's injured, then it, it gets an automatic game misconduct as well. So I can understand the officials calling the minor penalty on this play. But I think that's where they make the call on the ice real time. They assess it in the game. And separately, player safety does their own review. I, I know there's talk of player safety lightening up on the suspensions when a player has been tossed from the game. So, you know, first period hit results in an ejection. Maybe they're only going to give him one game instead of two because he effectively missed that game. I I get how that works. It's kind of tricky when it comes to timing of the game that you're, you're doing it, but I get that you kind of time served for that game and we'll give you one more. I think they complement each other well, but I, I think you you still have to take them separately and say, on the ice, we're making the best call possible. And remember, if it was a major, they could go back and review it and, and possibly downgrade it back to a minor. So the officials always have that at their disposal as well. But I think it, it works out fine if you let them both manage their own processes entirely, let the referees call it on the ice, but then player safety does need to step up and really take advantage of their ability to digest it, check out the multiple angles and and come down with that additional disciplinary action. One other in-game incident, actually it was after the game, but it doesn't involve physical contact initially. It was Leaf defenseman Jake Muzzin who kind of, here, take this puck as a souvenir, flipped it towards Matthew Kachuk at the end of a close, hard-fought game, the second game in a row between the Calgary Flames and the Toronto Maple Leafs, and there had been some chatter about who's doing what to whom in between. This is the kind of stuff that we're going to see on back-to-back games throughout this season because that's how the schedule is laid out this year. And I'm wondering, is this something that would go into the post-game report from the officials under the heading shenanigans, perhaps? And how do, how do, officials, how do officials deal with this sort of thing that happens after the game? That type of play is definitely under the category of shenanigans. And you saw there was a minor penalty. It was issued at the buzzer, so... No real effective outcome from that penalty other than just padding the PIM stats. It does set the table for a fine. <laughs> as an official, you know, I, I'm I'm putting it in the book as unsportsmanlike. And in this case, I think a fine would be warranted. Again, it's nonsense. It's shenanigans. If you're calling it shenanigans, it should probably result in a fine. That's what I'm, I'm, that's what I'm going with there. That's a good but, rule of thumb. You know, something like that. Why not? Why not give the guy a fine? Just to say we're not going to tolerate this kind of shenanigans and and that's precisely what it was but as far as the handoffs i I, you treat it like a playoff series right where typically you've got a supervisor and they're coordinating between the officials of each game to say here's what happened in game one make sure you're ready for this in game two you know watch muzzin and kachuk 
Well, this time around, it's much easier because you've got the same officials working the back-to-back -back game. So not only are they aware, they, they saw it when it happened last time. And that's one of the things that in their pregame prep meetings, when they're talking over the game and, and getting ready, they're making sure that they're aware of what happened in the last game. And they're, you know, they're discussing the situation and, and keeping an eye on these guys and making sure that nothing gets out of hand. So definitely a unique situation with what we've got this season because you have typically the same crews working that series. So in this instance... They do it at the end of the game. They send a message, and they know the next night they're going to be seeing those same guys back out on the ice together. It's interesting because this may go back even further than the previous game between the Flames and the, the Toronto Maple Leafs. And Kachuk landed on Jack Campbell at one point late in the game, oh, and yeah. there was a lot of talk in the 48 hours. But I, it was Kevin Bieksa who pointed this out, and I hadn't thought of it, but it might go back even further than that because Kachuk, of course, has an ongoing thing with LA Kings defenseman Drew Doughty, and Jake Muzzin was acquired by the Leafs from the LA Kings and had a bit of a set to with Kachuk when there was the whole, did he low bridge him? Was it a cheap shot? Was it a dirty hit? Who's going to fight whom kind of thing. So this might even have, uh, even have further implications as, as we move forward. And those are definitely the things as an official that you want to keep on your radar to be aware of what could explode at any minute or what, what grudges are out there, or what you're aware of that could be an issue. It just helps you, be aware of who's on the ice at what time. And, and if you know which guys might be a powder keg and might blow up, you could be a little more aware and a little more prepared for if and when that does happen. One more item to get to on this edition of the Scouting the Refs podcast, and it's some good news for American Hockey League officials that have been announced for the upcoming season. And the good news is that we seem to be getting closer to really getting going in the American Hockey League, and that's that's good news for everyone. We have some new referees and linesmen, as we always do, but it also looks like we have a number of officials departing and an awful lot of officials departing. Is there a specific reason for that? It's not as bad as it looks, Todd. Oh, good. When we were pulling together the updates and going, holy cow, there's there's a few coming in, there's a whole lot leaving, it comes down to a couple different things, and they're all COVID-related with what's happening in the AHL this season. So we've got a situation where we've got three teams that aren't taking part in the AHL season for 2021. Typically for linesmen in the AHL, they're based locally around those particular cities. So when you've got some that aren't participating, Charlotte, Milwaukee, and Springfield, any of the officials local to those buildings won't be taking part in the season this year because there's not a team that's there. While the referees travel, the linesmen, like I mentioned, are, are typically local. So you've got them out of the loop. Then you've got an issue where we've got four teams that have temporarily relocated. So it might be out of that sphere where those officials can work. It might be a little far for them. So they may have stepped out because of that as well. And then you've got the guys who purely for, for one reason or another, remember, we're looking at a lot of guys where this isn't their full-time gig. They might, for whether it's personal reasons, health reasons, or just concerns, have opted out of officiating in the AHL this season. So I think when you see all those things, it looks like there's a lot of guys that, that aren't working in the league this year. But the league does have a full crew. They, they can support the games that they've got and the schedule that they've got. And I would expect most of these guys to return next season when those teams come back, when everybody returns home, and when hopefully we're a little bit past this health concern of working these games. And we do still have to deal with American Hockey League officials who work both in the AHL and get some games in the National Hockey League as well. And you pointed out to me that there are some AHL 
referees that are working in the National Hockey League, but also as linesmen, not necessarily referees. That could be confusing as to when to put the arm up in the air. <laughs> you got to look down and make sure you don't have an orange band on your arm before you do anything, right? <laughs> Yeah, we've got a couple guys. And you know what? It's it's just the nature of the NHL season this year. We've got busy nights this week. And if anyone, whether it's travel concerns, whether it's health concerns, whether it's COVID protocol, any of those that could keep a, a linesman out, you don't have the flexibility that we typically see in an NHL season. You have to use the guys you've got. So if anything comes up and you've got a full slate, like we've seen two days this week, You've got to pull the resources you have. And and for Brandon Schrader and for Dan Kelly, that means that these two AHL, NHL referees are linesmen for the night. So it has to be interesting out there. You know, for Dan Kelly making his NHL debut, working his first game, I, I expected him to work it last season. But with the, the COVID implications to the NHL schedule, that late March, early April game didn't happen. So he makes his debut this week as a linesman. So we still get to wait for his refereeing debut in the National Hockey League. Well, good for these guys for making their way into the National Hockey League, however you do it, and good for them for doing whatever it takes to, to make it to the league. And for all those that are doing so much and working so hard to get this season going in the NHL and in the American Hockey League soon as well, well done. We appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to having more of these kinds of discussions going forward because I suspect that we'll have more shenanigans and other things in the next week. The Scouting the Rest podcast is powered by Team Stripes, your source for officiating equipment, training tools, apparel, and more. Check it out. GoTeamStripes.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Scouting the Refs podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Scouting the Refs, Instagram at Scouting the Refs, and visit ScoutingTheRefs.com. 